Hey, um, let's get started this evening. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to the book of Joshua. Joshua chapter 4 is where we are going to be this evening. Hopefully you had a, uh, a great Christmas and New Year's. Happy New Year, by the way. Um, 2019, I think we're, we're all around here looking forward to the things that uh, we have in store and that God has in store for us. We just had a little meeting earlier today um, kind of going through what uh, some of the fun things that we're going to be doing in 2019 as a church, and, and we're, I'm really, really looking forward to it. And I'm just, you know, specifically I'm believing that God is going to um, bring our church. I know that many of you probably don't know the people that you're sitting next to or who are are in front of you. And I'm just believing that God is going to take this community that we have right now and he's going to make it family. And so I'm really looking forward to that happening as well. Well, um, tonight we have our last and final value for Saints Hill Church from our Vision and Values series. And um, this message, as I was working on it this week, I really realized that it's really meant to go with all of the other values. It's a message that is kind of, it it encapsulates and and points back to all of our other values. So if you haven't listened to um, the other teachings on our 10 vision and values, um, please go to the podcast. They're all up on iTunes and uh, make your way through the ones that you may have missed. Um, But this is going to be the last one, the 10th one in our series. So Joshua chapter four, and let's read in verse one. When the whole nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, choose 12 men from among the people, one from each tribe, and tell them to take up 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan, from right where the priests are standing, and carry them over with you and put them down at the place where you stay tonight. So Joshua called together the 12 men he had appointed from the Israelites, one from each tribe, and said to them, Go over before the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan. Each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder according to the number of tribes of the Israelites to serve as a sign among you. In the future, when your children ask you, What do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, these waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. Our tenth and final core value is this. We have a privilege of leaving a legacy of heaven for the next generation. We have the privilege to leave a legacy of heaven for the next generation. Here's essentially what's happening in this passage. Israel, if you know the story, has just entered the promised land. Crossing the Jordan was entering the promised land um, after exiting Egypt about 40 years ago. And so here's the command of the Lord to them. Hey, listen, Israel, you just received breakthrough after 40 years of wandering the wilderness. Here is the promised land. This has been your hope for all of those years. Don't let your children... Forget the story of triumph that led to this point. And I love this line. He says, take 12 stones here from out of the midst of the Jordan, the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly as they carried the ark, the very presence of God, into 
the promised land. So make a reminder so that, here's why you make a reminder, so that your children never wonder if the promised land is really theirs or if they need to go back and fight for it all over again. They'll be able to look at those stones and say, no, God made a decisive victory that this should be our land and we crossed the Jordan into that land. I've heard the story. I know the testimony, right? Your children are supposed to get the breakthrough for free that cost all of you so much and so many years. May these stones be that reminder of their legacy. This story really exemplifies what legacy looks like in a a sentence. Here's what legacy is. Legacy is a handing down of the shared history, victory, and culture of a place so that the next generation starts where you left off. Many of you guys are familiar with the difference between something that's caught and something that's taught, right? One is explicit, the other is just in the air. Um, Tonight, what I'm concerned with here is what is caught when someone comes into our midst. What's in the air of Saints Hill? Because that culture, that air, will be the undying legacy of Saints Hill Church long after we're gone. And that culture is shaped by what we've just spent 14 weeks discussing and how we choose to act and how we choose to do church based on those values. That's why those values are so important. Please go back and listen to them. Um, I think that this is an important value this evening because for anything successful, we have to begin with the end in mind. Uh, Through this message, what I'm hoping to do is to place a target on where we want to go for the next 30 years. What will those who come in 2049 receive because of what we have planted and invested here in 2019. Many of us won't be around here any longer, but what will that person inherit? You know, one of the primary goals, I don't know how many of you guys have really thought much about this, but one of the primary goals of Jesus was to help you receive what had been done for you to receive an inheritance. It says this in Galatians chapter four. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law, that we might receive what? Adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also a what? An heir. Next slide, it says this in Hebrews chapter one. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed what? Heir of all things and through whom he also made the universe. Romans eight verse seven clears this up a little bit for us. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. So who are you? You're an heir. What are you inheriting? Well, whatever you're inheriting is what he's inheriting because you're a co-heir with Christ. And isn't this amazing? But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of what? All things. That's a lot of inheritance. Heir of all things, really. And then the audacity to say, oh, and by the way, you are a co-heir with Christ. In case you're wondering now, uh, scholars believe that Romans is one of the last letters that Paul wrote. And he's picking up, he, he knew about Hebrews, he's picking up on this theme and he's saying, listen, Christ is the heir of all things. 
you are co-heirs with Christ. I want you to meditate on that this week until it sinks in, because that is just stunning. And this is why the primary metaphor in the scriptures for salvation is being born again. It's a whole new life that you're getting. You get a new family. You get that spirit that cries out, Abba, Father, that's my dad. This is my family. And if you get a new family, then you get a new inheritance. But here's the catch. Your father, in the natural, think about this. Your father could have passed away and left you a million dollars in the bank. But if you don't know about it, it won't change your life. If you don't go to the bank, it won't change your life. If you don't make a withdrawal, it won't change your life. And so there's this very real spiritual inheritance that we have access to, according to the New Testament, but what those who come after us will also inherit, alongside being co-heirs with Christ, they're also gonna inherit our limitations on what we believed that inheritance meant. They're also gonna inherit our limitations on what we believed, how much of that inheritance was for us today. Those who are born in this heir will receive the way that we receive our inheritance that Christ has purchased for us. Now, we see examples of um, people passing down beliefs and actions um, all throughout the scriptures. In Romans uh, chapter one, it says, Paul says this, he says, I long to be with you so that I can impart something spiritual to you. And the fascinating thing, reality is this. He's just about to write 16 chapters of the richest theology. And he's like, but still, there's something that only being in my, in my presence I can give you. In um, the Old Testament, Elisha, many of you guys know this story. He asked Elijah to give him a double portion of what Elijah walked with when he was on earth. And do you know what Elisha gets? A double portion. Um, Exodus 34, 6 is maybe the best example of this. Uh, When God is asked by Moses, what is your name? In other words, what's your character like? Um, He he jumps into this incredible description of his compassion and his grace, but he also says, I'm just. And he says this, he says that the sins of parents can affect and torment their children's children and their children's children and their children's children. But he also says this in that very same passage, that God causes his love to travel through generational lines to the thousandth generation. So here's what it means. If sin, if you can leave sin for people to inherit, or they can inherit the pain that your sin has caused the family, you absolutely can leave blessing and breakthrough for them to inherit as well. That's the good news. So so here's what I want to put forth to you tonight. There are things that each generation has theologically, there there are certain things that they have learned and they have believed, and, and, and because of that, their children won't have to wade through the mire of conflicting ideas and character issues and wrong beliefs to arrive at that same core of truth. The truth was in the air they caught when they were born into that generation and from that generation. This is one of the flaws when we young people don't respect the generations who have gone before us. There's spiritual inheritance that they carry, and when we choose to ignore it, then we don't receive the blessing. The scriptures talk about receiving a prophet in the name of a prophet, and you'll receive a prophet's reward. What that's talking about is it's talking about honoring someone for the gift that they are, the, the history that they have with God. He, I can't give you my history, but I can impart the revelation and breakthrough that God has given me so that you can make your own history with him. That's what we're after. 
So for those who will come after us here in Newburgh, their inheritance is directly related to the revelation that we carry and the breakthrough that we have walked in. Revelation and breakthrough. If you're taking notes, write those two words down. Revelation and break, breakthrough. Um, th- these are two words that you may ha- have heard me or, or some of us use over the past few months. And uh, we'll continue to use them because I just love the concept of revelation and the concept of breakthrough. But what, let's define it a little bit. What, what do I mean by revelation? Well, there's many different kinds of revelation. There's general revelation. General revelation is you look out at nature and you're like, Okay, nothing plus nothing doesn't equal this. There must be something above this. There must be a mover. It's like non-energy plus non-material doesn't equal energy and material, right? And so there has to be something. That's general revelation. The scriptures say that God's been revealed through his creation. But then there's also special revelation. Special revelation is this. It's very specific. We're reading about God's character and and what he delights in and what he loves and, and the way that he interacts with humanity. It's specific right? I'm not talking about that revelation tonight, but what I am concerned with is what I call little r revelation. Write that down, little r revelation. And and here's what it is. Little r revelation is insight. It's new truth around a scripture. It's fresh wisdom about God's character that changes the way you see him. And and because of that, it changes the way that you live. Uh, Deuteronomy 29.29 refers to it in, in some sense. It says this, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed, there's that word revealed, belong to us and to our children forever, that we may follow all the words of this law. So, so get this, in this context, there are things that are secret things that were revealed to help Israel follow God into, in its entirety of what it means to follow God. Um, have you guys ever been in a room with someone and, and they, they just seem to have this wisdom about something that you're like, no natural amount of knowledge could have amounted to that insight. Have you ever had that happen before? I, I remember one of the first times that this happened to me. I was at a staff meeting when I was working at Bridgetown, and there's this uh, gentleman by the name of Chris Venand. Maybe some of you guys know him. He's a South African church planter that was just super influential with uh, Bridgetown and in my, my own life as well. We're having this staff meeting. Two-hour-long staff meeting. That's how church meetings go. It's like two hours of just like planning and talking and planning and talking. There were a couple different issues that were brought up. And Chris isn't a part of the church. He's from Southern California, and he had just come up to visit. And we got to the very end of the meeting, and all of us were just kind of like, I don't really know what the right thing to do about this or that is. And uh, John Mark goes, well, Chris, what do you think? And Chris said, I think three things. Boom, boom, boom. And it was like, revelation, insight, like it just opened up. We did not see that before. Have you ever had that happen? So powerful. Uh, well, well, Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, he says, this is why. It actually stems from this. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom a mystery that has been hidden. Now, pause. Where have we heard this hidden language? It's with Deuteronomy 29, 29. There's secret things. Wow. It, it, it's, it's a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him, these 
are the things God has revealed to us by his spirit. Okay, so hang with me for a second. Let's break this down. Paul is obviously in this passage not concerned with naturalistic wisdom, right? Anyone can access natural wisdom through trial and error. It's like you don't stick your finger into the light socket, right? Natural wisdom. Oh, that hurts. I don't want to do that, right? He's not concerned with that. What he's concerned with is wisdom that comes from God, this heavenly wisdom. Now, notice this. It's been hidden, but why is it hidden? Is it hidden from us? No, it's hidden for us. How do we know that? It says this. It's a mystery that's been hidden and that God destined for what? Our glory. So why is there, why is there wisdom that God is, that doesn't come from nature? It comes by his spirit because he wants to glorify you. So that when you speak that wisdom, when you share that insight about his character, what does it do? It actually gives you glory too. It gives him glory. It glorifies you as well. It's like, wow, that's impressive. That gives life. That instills hope. That's amazing. Now, what is the shape of this wisdom? How do we recognize this sort of wisdom? Can we put that slide back up for just a moment? It says this. Look at, look at the last line. It says, these are the things God has revealed to us by his spirit. So this wisdom what, what, is that, what is that wisdom? Well, it's right before these are the things that God has revealed to us by his spirit. It's what no eye has seen. It's what no ear has heard. And what no human mind has conceived. It's the things that God has prepared for those who love him. So, so get this. The good God has planned for those who love him that we couldn't have come up with on our own, that he wants to instill those dreams and those hopes and those uh, realities, those insights into you, that's real wisdom. I put forth to you this evening, if it doesn't inspire hope in you, it's not wise. If it doesn't inspire hope in you, it's not wisdom. Because true heavenly wisdom is that stuff that nobody's ever thought about before, about his goodness. That nobody's ever seen about his goodness. That nobody's ever heard about his goodness. That nobody's ever even imagined about his goodness. That's true wisdom. So what's the nature of revelation? Well, it's primarily insight into the unbelievable goodness of God that no one has imagined, heard of, or seen before. That's real wisdom. That's revelation. Now, keeping with the theme of Christmas, um, if you remember the story of Mary, Mary uh, has an angel come to her, and, and the angel says this to her, Mary, nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing will be impossible with God. Now, th this particular phrase here is super interesting. Um, the passage is Luke 1, 37, if you want to look it up later. And in the ESV translation, here's the way it translates it. Mary, for nothing will be impossible with God. But here's how the NIV translates it. For no word from God will ever fail. Well, that's weird. Because how do you reconcile those two translations? For nothing is impossible with God, one translation, but the other translation, very mainstream translations, is for no word of God will ever fail. Well, which is it? Now, um, here's the interesting thing about the Greek. Uh, I'm no Greek scholar, so if you're, you are a Greek scholar in the room, you can come correct me later. Um, the, the words in, in this phrase are, are essentially this. There's the word impossible, and then there's the word nothing. And the word nothing is uh, comprised of two different Greek words. The word in Greek for no, so no, thing, right? But the word for thing in it is rhema. That's the word rhema. And, and the word rhema means spoken word. So it could be translated, no spoken word. 
No spoken word, right? Very interesting. Um, Logos is used frequently in the scriptures to mean the, the written word, but rhema tends to be used for that which is freshly spoken. It's a new word. It's a fresh word. And so here's what is being said in the passage. No freshly spoken word will be impossible. Isn't that fascinating? That's how we reconcile it. It's no rhema, no freshly spoken word will be impossible, Mary. And she's like, well, that was a pretty impossible freshly spoken word you just told me about the Messiah coming, right? But, but, but here's the, word about, the thing about the word impossible in, in this. The, the word impossible in Greek, if you, look at, if you break it down, it means uh, without ability. Without ability. So, so you could translate this, if you were to break it all down and, and try to reconcile these two mainline translations, what, what, what is being said to Mary about the impossible prophetic revelation she's just received is this. No freshly spoken word comes without the ability to bring the word to pass. Did you get that? No freshly, nothing, no thing, no rhema, no freshly spoken word is impossible without ability. No freshly spoken word is without ability. So when God speaks that freshly spoken word, it's like in the word there is an ability for that word to bear fruit in your life. I think that's a good, that's a good word. When he speaks to us, the very revelation comes with the power to produce the fruit in your life. Sometimes we think God speaks to us and then we go, okay, I'll try really hard. No, no, wait, hang on a second. Nothing is impossible for God. No word from God will ever fail because it comes with the ability for the word to come to fruition through your life. That's a good word. (laughs) It is absolutely impossible to live the normal Christian life without receiving regular revelation from God. The Bible uh, doesn't say, hey, my people perish for lack of miracles, or my people perish for lack of money, or my people perish because of bad relationships or bad church leaders. It says in Hosea chapter 4, my people are destroyed for their lack of knowledge. In Proverbs uh, 29, 18, it says, where there's no revelation, people cast off restraint. In other words, where where there's no prophetic revelation, the people are unrestrained, walking in circles, having no direction or destiny. Revelation isn't like a nice little vitamin that we take when we're feeling spiritually depleted. We're like, I just need some revelation. I'm feeling, feeling kind of down. No, revelation is what you live by. It's when you open the scriptures and you get new insight into a passage. It's like I've read this a million times and I've never seen it this way. It, it's when you, it's when, honestly, it's when you realize that no word of God is ever spoken without the ability for it to come to pass. And you go, yes, thank you. That feeds me. Because now I know when you speak, you're giving me strength. Revelation is the key to the renewed mind because it gives us insight into his thoughts above all other thoughts. And how do you get revelation? How do you get it? Well, I would recommend to you how you get revelation is you actually desire it, you want it. God, I want your thoughts, I want your insights. I know a couple years ago I read this book all about the renewed mind and I, just, I, was, I was on a mission trip in Nicaragua and I sat on my bed and I said, I wanna devote my life to receiving revelation from you, God. That's what I wanna be about. Give me your thoughts, give me your revelation. I think that's how you get it. But we also learn in John 15, 15 that God, he says, I no longer call you slaves because slaves don't know what the master is doing. I now call you friends because everything that, my master, that the master is doing, he's now revealed to you. So what's the context of revelation? It's friendship. The context of receiving words from God is being his friend. 
In the Psalms, it has just this amazing phrase where it says, God confides in those who fear him. What does that mean? In another translation, it says, God whispers his secrets for those who he calls his friends. You guys are friends with God. Did you know that? If you have his spirit, you have access to friendship. It's not something you've got to clean yourself up for. Can you imagine that your father, when you were a teenager, goes down to a car dealership and buys a car from you, for you and, and drives it home to you and, and surprises you with a new car? And then you spend the rest of your high school years trying to earn enough money so that you can go pay for the car yourself down at the dealership. That would just be foolish, Right? But many of us, we treat our relationship with God that way. We think, oh, you paid all that, but I still need to somehow punish myself enough so that I can earn this grace that you've given me. You don't need to earn it. He's welcomed you into friendship, and it's time for us to receive the revelation he has for his friends. Your sin doesn't separate you from him. In fact, from the very beginning, when we look at Genesis chapter 3, the very first sin, what does God move further away from them, or does he get closer? He gets closer. And he pays the ultimate price on the cross so that sin would no longer be at any kind of barrier between you. It's already been paid for past, present, and future. And so there's at no point in your life anything that you could do that could jeopardize the relationship that you have with him. That wasn't in here. All right. Secondly, so we pass down, the re- we pass down revelation. We pass down new insight about God's character to our children and to those who will come after us. Things that are, that are because of our friendships with God in this room, we will be a different church in a year. We will be a way different church in 10 years. And in 30 years, we'll have an accumulated history of breakthrough and revelation that we get to hand off. So we get to hand off breakthrough. Bill Johnson, he says this. He says, it's the Lord's desire that the supernatural territory we occupy, the realms of life where we consistently demonstrate his authority, grow larger and more powerful as we pass it on to the next generation. What is breakthrough? Breakthrough is, is, is when something that could have taken an incredible amount of time and work or effort happens in a moment. In a moment. Something that could have taken seven years happens in seven minutes. And it can happen with your character. I have permission to share this story, but my wife, um, she had a season of her life about a year ago where she was just really bitter towards a a particular individual in her life. And it, it, it wasn't just a constant thing, but it was this thing that would flare up every now and then. And she's just like, I just can't stand them. And they did this, and they said this, and, and did you see how aloof they were, and you know, all of that. And, and she'll never forget it. We just talked about it today. Um, we were sitting down with a friend of ours named Pam. And we're having dinner with Pam, and Pam looks across the table. She's an older, uh, wiser woman. And she sits across, she's sitting across the table, and she looks at Emily, and she says, you're bitter, and your bitterness is holding you back as a couple. Stop being bitter. And it was like, she, you can talk to her after the service. It was like, broken. No more bitterness. It's over. Breakthrough in that moment. What could have taken counseling and work and effort and the Enneagram and going back and trying to dig up all of your stuff. It's like, no. It's just like in a moment, just breakthrough. All those things are great, but I'm looking, I think the Lord is looking for a people who have more faith in him than pop psychology. All right. I'm going to get emails. Or breakthrough can happen communally. Um, perhaps this, there's, a, there's a place that's struggling with finances, a town that that's, has a down economy. And through prayer, God can provide an income possibility for that area. I honestly believe that that's been Newburgh. 
Newburgh has been a place that has had in the past a depressed economy. I don't know if you guys know this, but the, the name that Newburgh co- was coined back in the day was the Grubby End. Did you know that? Which isn't like, if you live in like a Tolkien sort of mind, you're like, that's kind of quaint and romantic. Um, it wasn't. <laughs> the Grubby End meant it's the worst land in the Willamette Valley. That's the Grubby End, right? And, um, but but what, what have we discovered here? We've discovered that this place grows really good wine. There's like money in the soil. Over a couple hundred million dollars of profit in the wine industry in this last year. That's God's abundance. Let's not pretend that that's like there's secular and, and sacred divide. No, no, no. The earth is his and everything in it. And he has provided for this, for this land so that our economy could be boosted. I think that's a beautiful thing. I celebrate that personally. Or, or I know that this has been the case for many churches who they have asked God and pursued healing in their midst. They've wanted it so bad. We have a couple from the church who they um, grew up in the 80s attending John Wimber's church, uh, Anaheim Vineyard down in California. And if you read Power Healing, it's a little bit of a memoir about his church going after healing. He says in it for 10 months, they prayed every Sunday for somebody to get healed and nobody was healed. For 10 months, he has these stories of him laying in bed next to his wife, praying over her back. She had back issues and just praying, God, heal my wife's back. And for 10 months, they didn't see anything. But then in a moment, breakthrough. All of a sudden, people started getting healed right and left. John Wimber's name is now synonymous with the healing movement of today. Here's the deal. The breakthrough that we have in our lives can be handed down to the next generation as well so they don't have to till and work the soil like we did. I want us to do that. So here's what I want to show you um, next is I want to show you how this happens practically. So real life examples of legacy and inheritance. I love church history. It's one of my um, favorite things to read is just a, ch- a book on church history. There's just something about witnessing ordinary people um, just doing incredible things with God, people that we can see ourselves in doing extraordinary things. It just ignites something in my spirit to want more in my life as well. So, so just here, three examples from church history, of legacy being handed down. Um, so the first is this Luther and the Reformation. I, got, I think we got a photo of him. Yeah, there he is. That's a pretty handsome rendering of him. I've seen some other renderings not so uh, kind. So, uh, so I chose this one. That's him doing the famous thing, nailing his 95 theses to the door at Wittenberg. And uh, it just um, 95 different things he was, wanted, to, wanted to basically debate in the church, the Catholic church with. And uh, many of us know the story of the Reformation quite well, but what time gone by tends to do is numb us to the unbelievable shock Martin Luther's 95 disagreements with the Catholic Church were. Um, the, the church had only split once uh, since the time of Jesus, and by keeping the Bible's language untranslated, the church was able to wield the only interpretation. It's like, hey, no, this just says that you have to do what we say. I don't know if you saw that, but it does, and you can't read it, so just listen, take our word for it. Um, There was also a belief at the time that by making a payment to the church, the punishment for your sins was slowly eaten away, completely anti-gospel. The church was getting rich as people were more and more disconnected from God, and so a group of people began to speak against these unbiblical practices and translate the Bible into the language of the commoner, John Huss, John Wycliffe, and the Lollards. I don't know how many of you guys have ever heard of any of those names before, but their passion was that the plowman, that was their passion, they loved the plowman, that the plowman could read the Bible himself. 
that the language would be translated so that the people could have relationship with God personally. Their names eventually became synonymous with heresy, and yet millions and millions of people owe their relationships with God to those men. Luther's passion was for grace alone by faith and that indulgences would be done away with for good. He was passionate about the study of the original languages and the text of the Bible. He nails his 95 disagreements with the church to the door at Wittenberg in 1517 and shortly thereafter, unbelievable renewal breaks out. Whole cities are transformed by the reformers. But here's what happens. Just like the Roman Catholic Church had baptized people into their system when they were children, so did the reformers. They, they continued infant baptism. So, so hang on a second. Is it by faith or is it by the decision that your parents make when you're an infant? What is it? What happened was they actually began to codify their system yet again and the result was reformed theology rather than a shared heart to continue the reforming and the renewing. See, the danger is, and what we learn from this, is that we shouldn't codify or formulate what previous generations have accomplished. Instead, we should carry their same heart and push for more. Second example, John Wesley and the Methodists. These guys are just amazing. 200 years after the Reformation, 1700s, Methodism was like the rock and roll church movement of its day. It was radical in its message of inclusion and empowering of the peasant. Wesley is this firebrand. He's constantly in search of new revelation about the character of God, and he's sharing it with people on, a horse, on horseback, just traveling around. There's stories that tell us that Wesley would warn people when they'd come to witness and preach, don't get up in trees, because if you get up in trees, God's power's gonna come, and then you'll fall out of the trees and you'll get hurt. <laughs> the Methodists had this slogan, we're organized to beat the devil, don't you love that? It's like, oh, Saints Hill Church? Yeah, oh, those people are organized to beat the devil. Just amazing, right? They were called Methodists because they created a structure, not for structure's sake, but to set boundaries for God to do something significant in their midst. They pastored over 100,000 people through the process of raising up leaders who would then raise up leaders. Ironically, John Wesley never intended to start his own church, but here's what one historian said about his life. It is estimated that John Wesley gave away $150,000 to spread the cause of Christianity. When he died, he left behind him a well-worn frock and two silver teaspoons. Oh, and the Methodist church. That's legacy. Just an incredible legacy. But unfortunately, if you look at the Methodist church today, the Wesleyan movement is very little like its beginning. How? Why is it so different? Well, I think in many ways, and this is just my opinion, I'm not a scholar, but I think in many ways it has conceded territory to culture. It has lost power as a result. The gospel is not meant to be defended, constantly bobbing and weaving with the whims of popular opinion. It's designed to be on the offense. And so a heart to preserve and defend tends to live a life held at gunpoint. So how do you go from a revival center to a secular stronghold? Gradually, by one generation after another, yielding territory instead of embracing their inheritance. That's what we're supposed to do, is to move into new territory, standing on the shoulders of those who have gone before us. Last example. This one's short. Um, early Egyptian Christians. Perhaps the place Christianity has had the longest staying power is Egypt. I've been reading this book uh, about how the unremembered story of the Eastern Church and African Church developed and how eventually much of it ended up dying. 
Um, Much of it ended up dying, actually, for the reason, uh, in the 400s and the 700s, for the reason uh, that there were uh, Muslims, and Islam was taking um, over in the different areas where they lived, and there was just war, and they were being killed out. But one of the things that the author mentions in this book is that down through history, there is always a remnant left of true believers remaining in the midst of persecution. And he says this, the author says this about the Coptic church in Egypt, which still survives today, even under the threat of ISIS. He has this to say. Highly centralized and hierarchical organizations are more vulnerable to destruction than more decentralized groupings. The key difference making for survival is rather how deep a church planted its roots in a particular community and how far the religion became a part of the air that ordinary people breathed. While the Egyptians put the Christian faith in the language of the ordinary people from city dwellers to peasants, the African church was concerned with special categories in certain races. Egyptian Christianity became native. Its African counterpart was colonial. So think about this. Because of empowering the average person, Christianity has survived 2,000 years in one of the most hostile places on the planet. How? Because the culture of empowerment of the average Joe was placed as primary rather than trying to make sure the right people got into church. So what do we learn from these different examples? I think from the Reformation, we learned that we have to keep the relationship focus. It has to be about personal relationship with the Father. We can't codify things. We can't put structures around things and just say, okay, we're just gonna be more, we're gonna have more allegiance to the structure. No, our allegiance is to his presence. What do we learn from Methodism? We learn a lot of really great things from Methodism, and I don't want to disparage it at all, but we have to learn that we don't go on the defensive culturally. We play offense. Our mission isn't to debate culture, it's to preach the good news that God is full of joy and love, so much so that he paid the highest price so that you simply could enjoy peace and joy in his presence for eternity. That's our message. It's not like, how do we speak to this, and how do we talk about this? No, it's just like, this is the gospel. That's our message. What do we learn from the Egyptian church? We learn that we empower and we decentralize. There is no difference between the spiritual gifts God gives to those who are clergy and those who are not. Our goal is for the kingdom to become the air the average Joe breathes, period. That's our goal. So pause. Here's what we cannot, you know, all of that, you think about all of that, here's what we cannot control as a church or as individuals. We cannot control social opinion. It is constantly changing. The truth doesn't change. We cannot control how we are perceived. One of the things my mom told me years ago, she said, Alex, you're gonna have to, be, you're gonna have to get used to being misunderstood. I can't control how I'm perceived. I just can't. One way to kill revival is to spend a lot of time defending your beliefs and practices. It reveals a fear of people over a fear of God. But here's what we can control. What we can control is what we speak and how we act and how we take our thoughts captive. Really, the strength of this value, leaving a legacy of heaven, is the strength of all of our other values. So what are we gonna do with these values that we have listed out? God is good, the scriptures are authoritative, Jesus is Lord, we have the privilege of hosting the Father's presence. Nothing is impossible. We are the righteousness of God, we are people filled with hope and joy. We celebrate every person by creating an environment of honor. The church is a family that builds families. What are we gonna do with these? What we do with these values and the strength of these values is not dependent upon a church strategy or a program that we develop in some back room or a teaching series that we come up with 
What we as a church do with these values is entirely dependent on what you choose to do with these values. Will these become your values? When the storm comes, you go, wait, hang on, pause. My value is nothing's impossible. When you get the phone call from the doctor, hang on, pause. My value is God is good. And if you need a reminder, we now have a podcast explaining all of those values with our theology behind them. When we're asking you to commit to this church community, we're asking you to embody these values personally so that we can live them communally. Do they become your values? So here's the deal. You have one life to live. You got one shot at this. Who are you going to be? What kind of legacy will you leave? What will be said about your life? What will those who come after you inherit? Here's a photo of Paul's journey as once he encountered Jesus, uh, just from the back of my Bible. Yeah, that's my thumb up there in the corner. Um, Many of you guys have probably seen this map before, but just, it, it's got this code down here of all the journeys Paul made. Do you know how difficult it was, tra- it, it was to travel at this time period? It was hard. Just an amazing pictorial uh, depiction of legacy. A historian named Rodney Stark, he said, in 200 AD, 1% of the Greco-Roman world were Christians as a result of this, 1%. In 300 AD, 17% of the Greco-Roman world were Christians because of this. In 400 AD, 100% of the Greco-Roman world were Christians because of this. The message of Jesus changed the entire world from just one guy getting his imagination engaged for what could happen if the gospel reached the most influential cities in the world. And that's what we see on this map. And we're sitting here because of it. What about your life? Does anybody here know who George Mueller is? Just by like a show of hands, some of you guys know who George Mueller is. He's one of my heroes. He lived in the 1800s in Bristol, England, and was uh, known for uh, building an orphanage and and inviting orphans to come live with him in a time period where orphans worked in the poorhouses. Charles Dickens wrote novels that kind of depict that same era, and he was saving them from just the incredible harsh conditions. It's it's estimated that in his life, he fed and housed and educated over 10,000 orphans. Amazing life. Um, he, he dedicated himself to never ask for money, not even once, but he simply resolved, quote, this is what he said, I resolved to open my mouth that God would fill it, quoting Psalm 81. Over his life, he received over half a billion dollars in today's dollars to care for orphans. Half a billion dollars. Mueller had over 50,000 specific recorded answers to prayers in his journal, in his journals, 30,000 of which he said were answered on the same day or the same hour that he prayed them. In his journals, he had on one page, I would encourage you to do this, on one page he had prayer requests and on the other page he left it blank until they got answered. And he had them recorded. Now, when he died, uh, the income for his orphanage was $29,000 in that year. The year later, it was $43,000. In the 12 years after Mr. Mueller's death, over $360,000 came in. It was almost like the spiritual deposit he planted in the ground continued to produce fruit long after he left. That's legacy. And Jesus' life did the same thing. He paid the highest price, the price of his life, so that he would leave a legacy of heaven here on earth. John 12, 24 says this. 
Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. 200 years have come and gone, but no single life has offered such a legacy and inheritance like his. So two questions as we end tonight. If you are born again this evening with the same spirit Jesus carried and with a new inheritance, what will your legacy be? What revelation are you going after that you'll get to hand down? What breakthrough have you experienced in your life that you now get to give away? You know, I didn't have any peace, but God encountered me, and now I'm a person of peace, and I get to bless people with that peace wherever I go. What sort of legacy could you imagine Saints Hill having in this area? Here's what I want us to do. I want us to um, just take a moment. Um, There's pieces of paper just all around, (laughs) I would imagine. Grab one of those pieces of paper. Here's what we're going to do. Alan Scott uh, is one of my heroes, and he says this. He says, imagination is the first step of faith. It's the first word in a prayer. Imagination. God made your imagination so that you could discern his revelation about what he intends to do with a particular people in a particular place. And I believe that God wants to reveal his wisdom for this community. He wants to give that word that carries with it the power to accomplish it, and he's gonna use you in this moment right now. So here's what we're doing. Let's just take a moment to close our eyes, and I want you to imagine, if you could imagine anything being the legacy of Saints Hill Church, what would it be? What would this church do? What would you be a part of? What could you see happening here in this place? How would Newburgh change? How would McMinnville change? How would Sherwood change? How would the Willamette Valley change? How would the United States change? So God, we just invite you right now to come to give us your imagination for a place. What are you saying? What are you wanting to do? How are you wanting to move, God? We just take a moment just to listen to you We take a moment to engage our imagination. I also invite you guys to do this. What do you want to see happen? So often we're concerned with what he wants to see happen. That's beautiful. I think what it means to be friends is to not only do what one friend wants to do every time you hang out, but it's to do what both of the friends in the party want to do at different times. I think he's wondering, what do you want to see happen? What is your imagination for a place? What's your passion? What's your desire? And here's what I want you to do. When you have that, I just want you to write a simple sentence down. Just write a sentence down, and and what we're going to do is we're going to have you leave those on your chairs. Just leave them right there, and we're actually going to take these, and we're going to record them, and we're going to pray them over this place, and we're going to petition and till the soil so that what you dream tonight would become our legacy in 50, you know, 100 years from now. So just take a moment to do that. God, we just say thank you for insight. Thank you for revelation. Thanks for revealing your will here. Thank you that whenever we, whenever we even think about your thoughts, we know that they're good. Why? Because it's what no eye has seen, what no heart has imagined, what no ear has heard, what you have in store for those who love you. Thank you that you're good. Thank you that you have good for these people in this room.